Amen. Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, we are walking through the book of Romans. We've been doing that for most of the year. And this morning, we come to Romans chapter 9. Probably one of the most controversial chapters in the whole book of Romans, maybe the whole Bible. Happy homecoming to our guests. We're in the deep weeds. It's really not that hard to understand, though. It's just hard to accept. If you've grappled with this chapter, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have not yet grappled with this chapter, buckle up. Here we go. A lot of pastors actually will avoid this chapter. In fact, a lot of pastors avoid preaching through the book of Romans because they know they have to come here eventually. In fact, when I was in college, I was a new Christian and I took a semester off of college to kind of go to various college campuses and try to go on and equip uh, students at the Baptist Student Ministry, equip them to do evangelism and take them out and try to share the gospel. And so I would, I would go and I wouldn't know anybody. I ended up in Houston for about six weeks, two different stints of that time. And I would stay with my aunt some, my great aunt. And she would go to a church that was known in the city as an expositor, one who preached through books of the Bible. And I happened to be there and they were in the book of Romans. Chapters one to eight. Stop. <laughs> Didn't even go to chapter 9 and following. Probably he knew his limits. Maybe he knew the limits of his congregation. If I wanted to go Romans 1 to 8 and stop, I'm thankful that Southside wouldn't allow me to do that. But this chapter is here in our Bibles for a reason. It's placed where it is placed on purpose. And let me just preface this. It's like the postman. I don't write it. I just deliver it. Well, first, where have we been? Where have we been? Romans 8 ended with some of the grandest promises of all of Scripture. The great chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then if you hear last week, we looked at Romans 9, 1 to 5, and Paul lists all these privileges of the Jewish people. But most of the Jews, so privileged, most of them were persecuting the church. Read through the book of Acts. They had rejected the good news. They had rejected Jesus. And so the question naturally arises, wait a minute, has God's word failed? If God's word seemingly has failed Israel, who's to say it won't fail us too? I love all that Romans 8 stuff, but can I take it to the bank or not? And Romans 9 is going to show us why we can still trust God's word, even though the majority of his old covenant people are not being saved. That's what 9 to 11 is all about. Let's read Romans chapter 9, verse 6 to 23. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 889. Romans 9, 6. But... It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of promise, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For... This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, 
The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What we're going to see in chapter 9 is that it is grace, not race. In God's plan, it is not race that matters, but unconditional grace. So look at, let's look at three truths here. First, God's unconditional love. Second, God's justice. And then third, God's freedom from this passage. First, God's unconditional love in verses 6 to 13. Look again at 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For, because, not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. So again, if God had chosen Israel, read the Old Testament, why were so many of them rejecting the gospel? And again, Romans 9 to 11 is all about it. It's a really, really important question. To show God's word has not failed. You can trust him. You can take his promises to the bank. It has not failed. Why? He gives us a reason there. That's what that word for is. Because for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Here's the way the King James puts it. They are not Israel, which are of Israel. Will the real Israel please stand up? There's an Israel within the Israel. There's a spiritual Israel within physical Israel. There's a true Israel within the nation or the way he's going to use the language he's going to use there. There's an elect Israel within national Israel. So we've got to realize there's a little bit of specificity, a little bit of nuance when we talk about Israel. And we've seen that actually, if you've been with us, just in case you haven't, flip over to Romans chapter two, we've already seen a distinction between true and false Israel, true and false circumcision. Get Romans 2.28. There we saw, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So being Jewish now has nothing to do with outwardness anymore. 
It's not physical, but spiritual. Salvation's not a birthright. That's what he talked about in Romans chapter 4 as well, to show that anyone who has faith is included in Israel. Anyone who has faith is an heir to the promises of Abraham. Gentiles are in Christ. God's word has not failed because it's about grace, not race. Salvation was never, here's the key, salvation was never promised to every biological descendant of Abraham. That's his point. That's what he's going to come back to in chapter 11, just to sneak a peek. We won't get to Romans 11 until March, but take a look over at chapter 11, verse 2. We're taking a break from Romans. Don't sweat. We'll pick it back up, but look at Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's the key. It's not that he promised to save everybody. He promised to save those whom he foreknew. By the way, some interpreters come to this chapter and say this chapter is only about nations. It's only about historical destinies, and it's not about individual salvation. But that won't work for a number of reasons we'll see in this chapter. But first, right even right here at verse 6, we're already talking about people within the nation. So we're not just talking about nations here. We're talking about individuals, the remnant, the elect within the nation. And remember what we saw last week, the context. Paul's distressed over what? Broken over what? The fact that his fellow Israelites are not saved. It's a chapter that has to do with individual, individual salvation as well as nations. And then he turns to the Old Testament. So it's not that God's word has failed, because not all who are Israel are actually Israel. And then he turns to the Old Testament. Look at verse 7. He's going to turn to the Old Testament, give us a couple examples to show this has always been the case. First with Abraham, he's going to tell us God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And then with Isaac, he's going to show us God chose Jacob, not Esau. So first we have Abraham's children, Isaac and Ishmael. Look at verse 7. What then? Sorry, I'm going to write chapter 11. Romans 9, verse 7. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Not all who are Israel are Israel. Verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and then he quotes, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means... That it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And he quotes again, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So just because someone is physically descended from Abraham, that does not mean they are his children. Not all the physical offspring of Abraham are his children. To be a true child of Abraham, you must be, he says, a chosen child of promise. Those physical descendants of Abraham who are not chosen are of the flesh, and they're not his true children. They're not recipients of the promise. He says it's through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the offspring would come through. Both Isaac and Ishmael were children physically of Abraham, but only Isaac was the child of promise. Both are descended physically, but within Abraham's biological children, one is of the flesh and one is of the promise. Again, God never promised to save all, so God's word has not failed. Starting right here in Genesis, ethnic descent doesn't matter. It's grace, not race. And then he gives us another Old Testament example. Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, look at verse 10. He's building a case here. This chapter is really tight and logical. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, quote, the older will serve the younger. Remember, normally it's the opposite. Normally it's the younger serving the older. This is a, a flip story here. And then he quotes from Malachi, verse, th- verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. His point is it's always been this way. Not only so, he's continuing his point here. He's showing that there is an Israel within Israel. God's words not failed because God never promised to save every Israelite. There are those of the flesh, there are those of promise. Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau, but God chose Jacob and not Esau. They were both physical children of Isaac, but only one was a true child of Isaac. Twins, same father, same mother. That couldn't be said of Ishmael and Isaac. So just in case you thought, well, that's a unique case, he comes here. Twins of the same father, same mother, God chose one and not the other. And notice he tells us it had nothing to do with the twins themselves. The point must, we must get is God chose freely, unconditionally. Lots of people talk about the unconditional love of God. They really don't mean it though. But here we see it truly is unconditional love, unconditional election. He says, before they were born, before they had done anything, good or bad, God chose one and not the other. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, here's the reason, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Has God's word fallen? Verse 6. No. Because, verse 11, God's purpose of election stands. And then he quotes Malachi. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Hard verses. And often people will try to define hate here as something like, well, it means love less. But you just won't find that in any dictionary, any lexicon. But I don't think it's an emotional expression. I don't think this is uh, the emotion we ordinarily call by that name. If we look at the context here, Paul, I mean, Paul's talking about election. So how would we define it then? How would we define hatred here? Well, in, in his decision not to choose Esau. In other words, rejection. Jacob I have chosen. Esau I have rejected. It's not so much an emotion that God feels, but actions he carries out. And there it is. Clear as crystal. I, I mentioned before. One of our favorite kids' book, it's called The Biggest Story, and it's a book for probably five and under, really good uh, artwork in it called The Biggest Story. And in this section here, in Genesis, actually, in the story of Jacob and Esau, here's what the author writes. God picked Jacob to get the blessing, even though he was the younger brother and wasn't supposed to get the blessing. But God is God, so he gets to pick. A lot of, a lot of theology in that statement. God is God, he gets to pick. And he says it's not because of works. It's not because of anything they did. It's not because of works, but because of him who calls. If we've been paying attention to Romans, what would we probably think? Not because of works, this contrast, works and faith. That's been the contrast all throughout Romans. Not works, but faith. And that's because most of Romans so far has been about the doctrine of justification, that we are declared in the right by faith, not by works. Faith, not works. Faith, not works. Well, why doesn't he have that contrast here? He doesn't contrast faith and works. He contrasts 
works and the call of God. It's because he's not talking about justification here. Justification is conditioned on our faith. You must believe in order to be justified. Justification is conditional. Here, he's not talking about justification. He's talking about election. And election is unconditional. It is not conditioned on anything in us. Which is why Ephesians 1.4 says we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's why Revelation 13.8 says that our names were written in the book of life before the creation of the world. That's why 2 Timothy 1.9 says that grace was given us before the ages began. So has God's word failed? No. God never promised to save every Israelite, only those whom he had chosen. God always intended that only some would be saved. Second question is, does this make God unjust? Is this unfair that God does not choose all? So number two, God's justice in verses 14 to 18. What Paul's been saying here raises an objection. And so Paul anticipates an objection. He anticipates a counter argument. If God doesn't choose everyone, that's not fair. That's unjust. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. But why this anticipated objection? If what he just said here in Romans 9, 6 to 13, if that doesn't sound just to you, if that doesn't sound right to you, if that doesn't sound fair to you, then you are understanding it correctly. Because that's the anticipation that the Holy Spirit thought you might say. He thought that might sound unjust to human ears, so he anticipates it. Is God unjust? No. Notice the other view here in this chapter, in Romans chapter 8, is that it's all about us. We are the author of our salvation. We have free will and it's us and everyone has their, their ultimately salvation is determined by them. If Paul had said that, no one would say that's unjust. Everyone would say, well, that's perfectly fair. But if, as he's been saying, God chooses some and not others, that raises the objection. That's not right, and which is why verse 14 is in this chapter. If this weren't the case, this anticipated objection would not make sense. He asks this question because he knows this is the first reaction to everyone who hears this teaching. That's not right. And so he says, by no means God is just. And then again, he points back to the Old Testament. What he wants to do in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is show this has always been the case. Look at verse 15. For, he's grounding what he says, for because he says to Moses, quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he quotes here, this is from Exodus 33. This is right after the story of the golden calf. And Moses asked God, will you show me your glory? He asked God, will you show me who you are? Will you show me what makes you God and the Lord shows Moses who he is and what he is like. This is a display of who God is. It's a display of his character and his sovereignty and his freedom are core to who he is. He is not unjust. He is free. 
Because he's merciful and he's free to give mercy to whomever he chooses. Mercy is undeserved. So God can do whatever he wants. That's what it means to be God, in other words. And then he has a summary in verse 16. So he quotes Exodus. Then he summarizes verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's purpose of election does not depend on the human will. And friends, that's a good thing. If you've been with us, what have we seen just in the book of Romans? We've seen that if it were left to us, we run the other direction, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 11, there are none who seek God. Before grace interrupted our life, we would not have sought him. There are none who seek God, Romans 3. Romans 8, we, are, we were hostile to God, unable to submit to his law, Romans 8, 7. Spiritually unable, that was us. We were running the opposite direction. So if it depended upon our will, we would all be damned. Jesus says, no one can come to me. No one has the ability to come to Jesus, he says, unless the Father who sent him draws him. So if it depended on human will, no one would be saved because we're dead in sin. There's only one seeker, and that's God. Here's how John puts it, John chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did they do that? who were born not of blood, grace not race, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How did you become a child of God? How were you born again? Not by your will and not by your race, but of God's mercy, God's will, God's purpose. It doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on human exertion doesn't depend on human works. We could never work our way to salvation. It depends only on God who has mercy. Top lady had it right as he sung, thou must save and thou alone. And then he quotes the Bible again. Moving now from Israel's hero, Moses, to Israel's enemy, Pharaoh. It's in verse 17. For because it's always been this way, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose... I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is from Exodus chapter 9. In the midst of the plagues, Pharaoh's raised up that God might be known. In Exodus, in this section, it's all the language of hardening is found all throughout that section of Exodus. We see six times Exodus says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seven times it says Pharaoh Pharaoh hardened his own, sorry, no, three times. Six times, the Lord hardened Pharaoh. Three times, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Seven times, it says passively, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's a divine passive. God's the implied subject. But before all this goes down, before the battle ensues, here's what we read in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This is the first time hardening is mentioned. God's the one who hardens. This shows that God's hardening precedes and undergirds Pharaoh's self-hardening. Here again, we see the flip side of election is rejection. It's hardening. 
But also remember what we've seen in Romans and Scripture. God's hardening is really God just letting us go our own way. Again, we're running away, and he lets us run away. We saw that in Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their flesh. Romans 1, 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Romans 1, 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He lets them go. He surrenders the wicked to their own sinful ways rather than rescuing them. In grace and mercy, this really is an incredible verse here. God could have wiped out Pharaoh, but instead he raises him up only to go ahead and wipe him out. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, Pharaoh certainly applies. Pharaoh's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The reason God raised up Pharaoh in Exodus was to show his power. It's that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's God's motive. It's his glory. Then we have another summary verse in verse 18. So then, that's what we saw in verse 16. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So verse 15 and verse 17, his words to Moses and to Pharaoh, they're complementary. God is free to have mercy on whomever he wills, and he's free to harden whomever he wills. And again, that whom there is singular, showing that we're talking about individuals and not just historical destinies. And that doesn't make him unjust. It's because we all deserve judgment because of our sin. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder is that any of us are saved. So has God's word fallen? Has it failed? No. God never promised to save every Israelite, only those whom he had chosen. Second question, does this make God unjust? No. He has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And then Paul anticipates a third objection. Well, why does he still blame us then? God's sovereign freedom. Thirdly, look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul anticipates another objection. If God's totally sovereign, if God chooses some and not others, if God hardens whomever he wills and has mercy on whomever he wills, then how can he still blame us? Who can resist his sovereign will? How can God hold us accountable when he makes the decisions? If you feel that in your gut, you're hearing Paul right. Because he anticipates that you would. It shows that this is the right reading of this chapter. And he answers the objection in four questions. And these questions show us that our view of God is too small. And our view of ourself is often too large. Question number one in verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? This puts us in our place. Who are we to accuse God? Who are we to question God? Who are we to point the finger? You remember when Job did that? It didn't go well for him. Humans do not stand in judgment over God. Second question there in verse 20 as well, second part. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He's the sovereign creator. 
We're the finite creation. Who are we to ask and accuse? Why have you made things the way you've made them? He is the molder. We are the molded. Question three, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He uses the imagery of a potter and clay. He's the potter. We are the clay. Offensive imagery to us man-centered, Western, enlightened people. But he says the potter can do whatever he wants with his lump of clay. And by the way, again, this imagery has Old Testament backing. He's saying it's always been this way. It's Jeremiah 40, excuse me, Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45, Jeremiah 18. This is the way it's always been. My kids, like all kids, like to play with Play-Doh. And most of it, you know, <clears throat> ends up missing from toddlers eating it and hardened and brown for it being all mixed together. Well, I don't have a lot of Play-Doh skills, but if I decided to make a snake, I'm really good at snakes. Decided to make a snake and started to ball it back up. And that snake started talking trash to me. First, I would wonder if I had eaten too much Play-Doh. <laughs> Am I hearing things? That's snakes. Wait, wait, wait I'm, I'm a snake. I'm not a ball. Who do you think you are? Don't, don't put me in that brown hardened stuff. I'm fresh. I could say, you know what? I'm the one who bought you from Amazon.com. I will put you in that brown mixture if I want to. You would not exist if it were not for me. The clay has zero right to accuse the potter, the creator. And yet we people, we think we can put God in the dock. And he puts us back where we belong, small, with him big. Fourth one, fourth questions in 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he hath prepared beforehand for glory? Much like God raising up Pharaoh and hardening Pharaoh to show his power and that his name might be made known. Here, God's desire is to show his wrath. It's to make known his power. And it's to make known the riches of his glory by preparing in advance some vessels for mercy and some vessels for wrath. Again, all too often we have made God too small. We have domesticated him. We have tamed the God of Scripture, but he has orchestrated history in such a way that he receive maximum glory. J.I. Packer says, You can ask the question, why does God? And you can put anything there, fill in the blank, and the answer will always be for his glory. Here we see the full range of his attributes, powerful wrath and the sunshine of mercy. And then when the mercy of God is set against the backdrop of his wrath, God receives maximum glory for saving sinners. If God had shown mercy to all or if God had condemned all, we would not see his glory to the fullest. So as God's word failed, not a chance. He says he's never promised to save every Israelite, only those whom he chose. Is God therefore unjust? By no means. He can have mercy on whom he wills and harden whom he wills. Well, why does God still find fault? Who are you, O created one, to talk back to the creator? God is sovereign. God is free. 
God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. He tells us that his name is I am that I am. Some translate that as I will be what I will be. His name and his essence is freedom from constraints. To be God is to be free to do whatever he wants for his glory. That's how Nebuchadnezzar put it in Daniel. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Sometimes people will say, well, that's, that's not my God. I don't worship a God like that, and we've got to be very careful of using that kind of language because this is who God has revealed himself to be. And sadly, it's true that people say, I don't worship a God like that. All too often, again, our view of God is way too small. We've domesticated and we've tamed him. And if God fits our little box of what a God should be like, he's probably not God. It's probably you. But passages like these, they remind us and they show us that there is a wide, vast difference between the creator and the creature. Romans 9 teaches us about the character of God. He is sovereign in salvation. And I've mentioned it's not just Romans 9. It's sort of a gateway to this truth. But I mentioned when we were in Romans 8, verse 30, that some form of election or predestination occurs 50, five, zero times in the New Testament. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it's written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there's no getting rid of it. There it stands. People get upset about Romans 9. I did. I wrestled long and hard. I cried over these verses when I was first introduced. I tried to prove them wrong. That's how I was really introduced. I tried to prove it wrong. It didn't work. But I came to see that this is who God is from beginning to end. That's who he is. He chose Noah and not the rest of the world. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Israel. And it had nothing to do with the merits of Israel. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that. God's choice to shed light on Israel was a choice to leave the rest of the world in darkness. People say, well, that's not fair. If fair is equal treatment of every single person, God has never been fair. But friends, we don't want fair. Fair is justice. If we get justice, we get hell. We don't want fair. We want mercy. And praise God, he offers it freely. Well, how should we respond? Four ways. Wrestle, pray, witness, and be filled with gratitude. First is wrestle. Really ought to just say keep wrestling because that was one of my application points as we went through Romans 8.30. Keep wrestling and keep wrestling with Scripture. As I mentioned, I was mad. When I was first introduced to this stuff, it took me many months. Let me encourage you, wrestle with Scripture, though. Wrestle with his word. Wrestle with Romans 9. Really helpful book, if you want a, a non-biblical book, is R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God. Short, maybe you and a friend or two get together and spend six weeks reading through it and opening the Bible as you read it. If you want to meet with one of the ministers, one of the elders would be glad to talk you through it. Wrestle with Scripture. This may be news for some of you. Some of you may be mad as fire right now. Let me encourage you to wrestle with God's word. Number two, pray and pray big. 
pray big. God is sovereign. We've seen that. But he uses means. He is sovereign, but he uses means in his world. And one of the means he loves to use, commands us to do, is to pray. And if God is sovereign, we can pray and we can pray big because he can do it. That's why I love we've seen in chapter 9, he's broken. And then look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Notice the apostle doesn't say, well, God hardens some, God chooses some. I'm just going to sit back. No, he says, I'm going to pray that they be saved because God can do it. So we ought to pray big. And listen, the fact that we pray shows that we believe this truth. We all give thanks to God for our salvation. None of us are like, yeah, I'm a Christian. No, we know it was mercy. We know it was sovereign grace. We pray and we thank God for saving us. And when we pray for our lost friends, we show that we believe God is sovereign to save. J.I. Packer says, we may disagree on our feet about this topic, but on our knees, we all agree because we don't pray, Lord, would you, would you uh, move circumstances in such a way that that person might, might see the beauty of Jesus? No, we pray, God, would you save them? And you should. Pray that God would remove blinders, soften hard hearts, open eyes. Pray that God would do what only he can do. So pray big to a sovereign God who uses means. Number three, witness boldly. Witness boldly because, you know, God is sovereign to save. God uses his gospel to save. We just get to be a part of it. We're privileged to participate on what God is going to do. And some of the greatest missionaries and evangelists have believed in unconditional election. Just to name a few, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, David Livingston, John Stott, D. James Kennedy, the one who developed evangelism explosion a couple decades ago, Francis Schaeffer, John Piper. But Paul's the best example. Paul goes from Romans 8 here, talking about the sovereignty of God, to chapter 9 at the beginning, broken over the lost brothers and sisters, to telling us about how God saves, to then once again going to chapter 10 and praying for their salvation. And then to chapter 15, he says he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. Knowing that God is sovereign in salvation emboldens our witness. It makes us confidence. That's how Jesus put it. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. If that doesn't give you confidence in evangelism, I don't know what does. The Apostle Paul was having a rough time in Corinth, and here's what it says in Acts 18. It makes us bold in our witness, and it makes us patient in our witness. Acts 18, 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent." For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For, here's the reason, I have many in this city who are my people. God has many in every nation, tribe, tongue, people, and language. This is why people go to the hard places. They know God has people that will hear the voice of their shepherd when we bring the gospel to them. So witness boldly. And then fourth, be grateful. This doctrine is not meant to stir controversy, but comfort. Not polemics, but praise. Not debate, but delight. God saved you if you're in Christ. God chose you before you were born. Had nothing to do with you. Pure 
grace. And if he had not, you would not be saved. Again, here's how Charles Spurgeon puts it. My famous, my favorite famous Baptist preacher. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. It should cause us to be grateful, grateful for the salvation that he has given us that leads to a life of praise. That's why we don't have time to go there. But in Ephesians chapter 1, which is the other chapter that teaches this so clearly, it's a long sentence of praise begins, blessed be God, because he's chosen us before the foundation of the world, because he's predestined us to adoption. He predestines all things. And three times in that one sentence, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace, deeper gratitude, deeper humility. We can only boast in the Lord. We have zero room for boasting. Salvation is truly grace alone. In any other view, the ultimate ground of salvation is in us. In any other view, we are the author of our salvation. We were a little bit more open to new ideas. We were a little bit more humble. We were a little bit more wise. We were a little bit more righteous. And then you have reason to boast. Well, no, not according to God. Deeper gratitude. Deeper gratitude because it gives us a steadier assurance. It's really the, the gist of these chapters that we might be assured. Can you lose your salvation if you're a believer? No, it's not yours to lose. It's what Romans 8 has all about, been all about. And I submit if you pull this teaching out of Romans 8, Romans 8 falls apart. Just look at Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Salvation is of the Lord from predestination to glorification, which hadn't even happened yet. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. Grace, the gift of God, so that no one might boast. So the song of the great multitude from every nation, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation is only due to his grace, his purpose, his wisdom, his initiative, his power, his mercy. To him and to him alone be the glory.